Hello, I hope you had a wonderful Easter weekend. I am here re-recording our Sunday podcast because we had a few technical difficulties. So this is the podcast version of our talk from Sunday called Sunday People. Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? When it comes to Easter, that's a really important question. Because the resurrection story is either an insane load of cod wallop Or it changes everything. The fact that a man was crucified by the Roman Empire, spent 40 days visiting people, eating breakfast with people, walking through locked doors, showing his scars, and then eventually ascending into heaven in front of 500 witnesses is one of those stories that you just think that is just ridiculous. Or it changes everything. And you might ask, you know, Let's just entertain the fact that maybe he did rise from the dead. Even if he did 1,989 years ago, who cares? Like, what, what does it matter today? We see cockroaches rise from the dead all the time when I walk out into my kitchen in the morning and there's a large, long jetty cockroach, which these things are built different, upside down. I think it's dead. I go to pick it up and it's like, huzzah, flip, resurrection. The resurrection is either insane or... It changes everything. In a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a church that he planted, Paul was this like prolific church planter. He would go to different cities and start these new communities, these new startup communities. And he wrote this one letter back to a church that he planted in Corinth. And 1 Corinthians 15 is this whole chapter. I wish I could read it out for you. Um, But it's, it's all about resurrection. And he says this of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. What Paul is saying there is that either resurrection is real, the resurrection of Jesus is a real thing, or the whole of Christianity is useless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no point being a Christian. That's, that's the call that Jesus makes. So what does Paul think happens? He, he says this in verse 3. He says, I, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by, 12, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. So that's what Paul thinks happens. But what, what do the historians say? 
There's a historian, his name is E.P. Sanders. He's not a Christian, he's a secular historian, but he, he says this. These are the undisputable facts, he says, of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is widely agreed by most historians. He says, Jesus was born in 4 BCE, near the time of the death of Herod the Great. He spent his childhood and early adult years in Nazareth, a Galilean village. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in the towns, villages, and countryside of Galilee. He preached the kingdom of God. About the year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover. He created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with his disciples. He was arrested and and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. He was executed on the orders of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. We may add here a short list of equally secure facts about the aftermath of Jesus' life. His disciples fled. They saw him, in what sense is not certain, after his death. As a consequence, they believed that he would return to found the kingdom. They formed a community to await his return. And so they are these historical facts about Jesus of Nazareth, about his resurrection, or at least the aftermath of his death. And there's been a lot of talk and a lot of theories around what happened to Jesus, what happened to his body in the empty tomb. Some people have put forward the theory that maybe uh, grave robbers have come and taken his body. This was a pretty common act that, particularly in a rich person's person's tomb, like Joseph's was, that grave robbers would come. Um, But they wouldn't steal a body, they would steal the clothes, because there was these beautiful linen kind of grave clothes. And so in the gospel accounts, we see that the body of Jesus is gone, but the clothes are still there. And so it doesn't really make sense that robbers would have done it. The second theory out there is that either the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities took Jesus' body. Um, And this doesn't really make sense because what's the angle, right? They wanted to crush this movement. And so giving rise to this like this myth that, you know, their their savior, their king had risen again, it ended up causing lots of trouble for the Jewish authorities. It became the downfall of the Roman Empire in many ways. And so at any point when this kind of grassroots movement, this resurrection movement was growing, uh, they definitely would have brought out the body and said, huzzah, we got you. It was all a joke. You know, we stole the body. And so that theory doesn't really make sense. The third theory, and this is probably the the one with the most um, the weight to it, the one that makes most sense to me, is that the disciples made it up. They just wanted this, this, uh, this movement to be so true, this king. They believed in him so much that they took themselves into this hysteria. Maybe they hallucinated and, and, and saw things and they, they just constructed a story out of that. But it doesn't really make sense for a few reasons. Um, number one, there are 500 eyewitnesses that seem for 40, 40 days and then it's like ended. If those hallucinating, then, you know, the, the fact that they all stop at the same time, start at the same time is pretty incredible. Um, and we know that they were still alive. Jesus, uh, Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians, that they're still alive as he's writing this. And so there would have been uh, counter arguments against Jesus rising from the dead if from these eyewitnesses if they didn't think it happened. And so there were people you could go and speak to and ask. The second reason is that, you know, the disciples were willing to die for this. They, uh, Peter was crucified upside down. 
John was boiled alive. Stephen was stoned to death. You don't die for a lie like that. They went from being wimps, you know, cowering away behind locked doors to these like miracle working, um, movement founding people that started this great revolution that's still impacting the world 1,989 years later. We also know that Thomas didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he saw him and put his fingers in the scars, which is kind of weird and gross. We know that Paul didn't believe in the resurrection. He was persecuting. In fact, he was part of the the death of Stephen um, until Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And finally, uh, the accounts of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus rising from the dead were women. And this doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a huge deal in the first century. Uh, A woman's testimony wasn't valid in court. And so if you were going to make up a story about someone rising from the dead, you would put the first eyewitness as someone credible, someone that would be able to attest in court, someone that would be believed. But women, you know, that was seen as subhuman and, and seen as not believable. And so there's no way that you would put that detail into the story if you were making it up. I guess the only other option then, and this is where I come to, is that maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. And even presented with all that facts, you might say things like resurrection just don't happen. That is like, it has to be a fairy tale. Biologically, physically, it just doesn't happen. I kind of tend to agree. But what if it did? Impossible things don't happen until they do. Humans don't walk on the moon until they do. The first heart transplant inside a human body doesn't happen until it does. The creation of the computer chip, a little piece of silicon that I don't even know how it works, but it makes computers or the internet or AI. Those things don't happen until they do. Or planes, which are like a giant toothpaste tube screaming through the air at 600 kilometers an hour, is insane those things don't happen until they do everything is unprecedented until it isn't and sometimes insane things do happen the resurrection if true opens up a cosmos of new possibilities paul goes on in his letter to the corinthians in chapter 15 that same chapter in verse 20 And he says this, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone has died because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Now, Paul here is saying that Jesus was the first amongst the resurrection. He was the prototype, but he won't be the last. We too are being resurrected. The resurrection changes everything, number one, because it changes life after death. It changes the possibility that there is the afterlife. There is life after death. I wish I could talk about that more, um, but we don't have time. And the second reason that the resurrection changes everything, and this is where I want to land today, is that the resurrection changes everything because it changes life before death. And it changes life before death because it changes the story of what's possible. 
It changes the story of what we live by. We are meaning-making machines. We make meaning out of our world by placing the events that have happened, the things that have happened to us, the, the things we've experienced. We place them in a timeline. We place them in a story of where we've come from and where we're going. It's a well-known theory through psychology that, that we don't live by facts. It's not facts that we live by. It's not facts that, we, that change us or change our behavior. It's story. We are storied machines. Story is like the operating system of our soul. We can know that sugar is bad for us, but we still you know, wake up on Easter morning and eat chocolate, right? We know that exercise is good for us, but until we become the sort of people that are exercisers or runners or weightlifters or crossfitters or whatever it is, then we won't exercise, right? It's about the story that we live by. You know, for Mel and I, for a long time, since 2010, we knew that God was calling us to plant a church. And for a long time, we thought that God was calling us to plant a church in the United States, in San Francisco of all places. I'm very glad that I'm in Long Jenny today and not in San Francisco. But because of that story that we were living by, that we were going to go overseas, we were going to plant a church overseas, there are a whole bunch of things that were just off limits to us. Uh, we didn't really think about starting a family. We didn't really think about buying a house. And so we didn't plan for those things. We didn't put a plan in place because it wasn't part of the story. We just couldn't even fathom what that would look like in another country just yet. And so when our story changed and we eventually uh, planted in Longjetty instead of San Francisco, um, what was possible changed as well. And we started to plan to start a family. We started to plan to buy a house. And all those things change because of the story that we're living by. If the resurrection is real, it should so radically change our internal story that it changes how we live today. And the disciples, they had been living by this story that they found came up empty. They thought Jesus was just going to be this big political king activist leader that was going to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire, kind of like the Ukrainians rising up against the Russians, right? That's the kind of the sentiment that's going on in, in Jerusalem at that time. And so when Rome came and crucified Jesus, they crushed that story. And so on the Saturday after Jesus had been crucified, they realized their story was empty. Their story was done. It came up empty just like the tomb. Peter crumples in front of a teenage girl when she says, hey, aren't you from Nazareth? Like, do, do, do you know this Jesus guy? Like, you've got the same accent as him. You Surely you know him. And he's like, no, I don't even know him. I mean, 16-year-old girls can be scary sometimes, but Peter crumples. He was like this movement leader, and yet a, a girl asked him, if, asked him if he knows Jesus, and he says no. But after Sunday, Peter becomes a movement leader. And here's the thing. This is what I want you to catch. If you are a follower of Jesus, we are Sunday people in a Saturday world. We live by a different story. We live by the Sunday story in a world full of empty Saturday stories, empty tomb stories. 
We are Sunday people in a Saturday world. And there are four stories. There's lots of stories that we live by as humans, but there's four stories that I see in our community, in my friends, in my own life, in our culture. And um, the first of those stories is a political one. It's the first of the two political ones is, is the conservative story, is that if we just keep things the, the way they are, the way they're meant to be, we just keep traditional family, we, we, we want to keep in our country, you know, we want to we um, make our economy good, make sure we're doing well, we want to keep things the way that they have been. We want to just kind of look after our own and uh, get things going good. We're going to keep ourselves in the golden days. And uh, that's a great story if the golden days were good for you. Not so good if you're a woman or if you're indigenous. The other story, the other political story, the second story is uh, probably one that's a lot more common amongst our church is the, the progressive political story. Is that if we could just get our society to a point that had enough gender equality, had enough economic equality, had enough racial equality, if we can just, um, you know, censor like bad voices and just, you know, direct the narrative in the way that we like, if we could just get enough, you know, technology, then we would create some sort of utopia. The world would be good. And it's a great story, a compelling story, except that it's not working. You know, we live in the most technologically advanced, equal society in human history, and yet anxiety and depression and loneliness are as high as they've ever been in human history. And so the third story is maybe a more personal one, not so much a political one, is the Aussie dream. That if I could just get that house with, you know, the white weatherboard out the front and a cactus and a palm tree, and a dog in the backyard and a few kids and uh, you know a decent car and if I could have just a good job and I could go out for brunch and hang out at the beach and have friends over for for a barbecue and have some nice red wine or some craft beer and you know go on my holiday once a year then like I will be happy I'll be fulfilled it's a great compelling story except I talk to people time and time again who have reached all those milestones and yet they're unfulfilled they're not happy. They always just want more. They want the next thing. The story comes up empty. That's a Saturday story. The fourth story, a compelling one to me as well, is the story of significance. Like I want to do something with my life. I want to create value. I want to add value to the world. I want people to, to know me and respect me and follow me on Instagram and listen to me. I want to, I want to be famous but just uh, not just you know so that people look at me but so that i can do something good with the world and it's a compelling story that a lot of people and particularly a lot of young people are living by but that story if you follow it to its end shows the people that are most famous and wealthiest in our world are sometimes the people that are most unhappy you know mel and i uh, went out for lunch with this uh, lady who lives in our neighborhood and they moved into uh, Long Jetty about the same time as us and we're following them on Instagram and they were like travel bloggers and they had this huge Instagram account hundreds of thousands of people and they were living off it, off it and um, you know all the all the influencer stuff all the stuff that everyone wants and uh, we're sitting down eating brisket and she just wanted to catch up and, and ask some questions about church and about God and Kanye West for some reason. 
but she said this thing to me that's she, she said you know we've got all that we want and all the followers and yet it's killing me inside she said something that stuck with me for a long time is she said the soul is not meant to have this many eyes on it the soul is not meant to have this many eyes on it you know that significant story or the fame story it comes up empty so many people are unhappy and all those stories they're all attractive because they are part true and they're all empty because they're only part true the sunday story I believe is a story that changes everything. The resurrection story. The story that says at the end of the age, Revelation 21 and 22, heaven and earth will be reconnected. It paints this image of this city and the, and the gates are open and every tribe and tongue and nation will be welcomed in. And it says God will wipe away every tears and there'll be this river flowing out, a river of life and there's trees. And it says the, the, the leaves will be healing for the nations. This kind of beautiful picture. Isaiah paints this picture of this kind of new creation as well. And he says the lion will lie down with the lamb. We'll turn our, our swords into plowshares or if you want our, our guns into garden tools. There'll be a new king and a new government, right? No, no more corruption. A government ruled by love of God and love of neighbor will be gifted to contribute. There's an offering of the forgiveness of sins, everything we've done wrong against ourselves or God or others. There'll be deep community across ethnic divide. Body and soul will be connected. And this is the beautiful thing about the resurrection story is not that like my body dies and my soul, like the kind of immaterial part of me goes somewhere else, goes and hangs out in clouds. That's not the, that's not the Bible story. That's, that's Plato. That's like a Greek philosophy. The true Christian story is resurrection, that our body matters. This life matters. The table I'm sitting at matters. What I do with my time matters because this world is intricately connected to the next. That this whole thing is being rebooted and resurrected. It's not going to just be destroyed. There's, there's, the material aspect of life is incredible. Jesus came as a resurrected human. He had scars and he ate breakfast. The resurrection matters. This is a story of what Paul says later in this Corinthians 15 chapter of the seed and the flower. This life is like the seed. This body is like the seed and the next will be like a flower. They're intricately connected, but very different. That seeds ultimately turn into flowers. What I do in this life are the seeds that turn into flowers in the next. Martin Luther, the great reformer has this quote that I love. He says, if the world ended tomorrow, I would go and plant a tree. Because this life matters in the next. The NT Wright says, what you do in the present by painting and preaching and singing and sewing and praying and teaching and building hospitals and digging wells and campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all these things will last into God's future. Resurrection changes everything because... It changes not just life after death, but life before death, because it changes the story that we live by. And the image of baptism, like the Christian baptism, is washing away the old story and immersing yourselves in the new story. It's, it's the Sunday story tells us that the seeds of this life turn into flowers, that your work matters, what you create matters, what you do with your time matters, because the seeds that will turn into flowers 
in new creation, that your relationships matter, the way that you treat people, the way that you love your neighbor and your family and the stranger on the side of the road matters because it's the seeds that will turn into flowers in new creation. And finally, it tells us that our suffering matters, that the pain and the hurt and the grief and the loss of, the, of this life actually matters because it's the seeds that fall to the ground and die that give way to the flower. Sunday people know that death is not the end. It's just part of resurrection. Because through every death is a possibility of resurrection. Viktor Frankl, who was a therapist and German Jew in World War II, was taken into the Nazi camp Auschwitz, you know, one of the most disgusting places on earth. Um, incredible atrocities and out of his time in Auschwitz he came up with this model of psychotherapy he writes about it in his book Man's Search for Meaning he says we find meaning in three things our, our work like what we do what we accomplish our relationships or the experiences we have with the people around us and, and suffering and a man who had lived through Auschwitz he has this great quote he says if our suffering is meaningless everything is meaningless if our suffering is meaningless, everything is meaningless. For Mel and I, when our story changed and we knew we were planting a church in Long Jetty, we decided we're going to birth a church first and then we're going to birth a child. And so um, once the church launched, we decided to start trying to have kids. And uh, we were trying for over a year and we just thought it wasn't going to happen. You know, I don't know many people have experienced that fact, you know, that maybe this is just not going to happen. And eventually, uh, it did happen. It was a miracle. And we went to the eight-week scan, and we saw the little heartbeat on the monitor. It was the most incredible thing. The little, little miracle heartbeat. And it's just like all these hopes and dreams for this little person that you're going to meet, which is incredible. And for whatever reason, four weeks later, that little heartbeat stopped. It was just a crushing moment. We've all experienced moments of grief and loss and crushing pain. It's the unfortunate byproduct of being a human being. But I tell you what, when we lost our baby, I was so glad that I'm a Sunday person. Because the resurrection story became so deeply real to me, so deeply embedded in who I am. The hope that our little girl will be resurrected again with us, that death is not the end, that suffering and pain is not meaningless because we live by a larger story. And maybe I'm crazy for believing in resurrection, but maybe I'm not. The resurrection is either insane or it changes everything. And so my question to you is which story are you really living by?